Well, good evening, church. Well, hi. Bear with me a little this evening. I woke up this morning, didn't have a voice. The voice came back, a little congested, but uh, I really wanted to get to Judges chapter 14 and 15 tonight. And so if you would, open your Bibles to Judges chapter 14. If you need a Bible, we'll get one right to your seat. Just raise your hand. Judges chapter 14. Father, we thank you for this time we can spend in your word. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being here and in showing to us, Lord, as we dig into your word, things that you want to apply to our lives personally, Lord, as a church corporately. We thank you, Lord, for uh, just the work that you're doing in our church, in our lives. We pray, Lord, just your blessing upon our time together. We pray for the kids as they're being ministered to in the back. Lord, in all things, that we bring glory to your name. So we thank you for this time we committed to you. Pray. Amen. The last time together, we started studying a guy by the name of Samson. We finished chapter 13 and the announcement of his birth. Now get this, about one-fifth of the entire book of Judges centers around this very unique and very flawed individual. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 of Judges all talk about this very unusual judge who was consecrated by his parents from a baby. In fact, it was really a, a miraculous sort of announcement about his birth. See, in chapter 13, we discover that the angel Lord came to the parents, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Manoah, and it said that he was going to be a Nazarite from his, from his birth, his whole life, a lifelong Nazarite. The book of Numbers, chapter t- 6, talks about the vow of a Nazarite that a man or woman could take a vow of consecration to the Lord. And it was something voluntary. They didn't have to do it. It was something you just said, you know, Lord, I just want my life to be spent solely for your purpose and for your glory. And I want to, I want to hear your voice. I give myself to you. That'd be a very special vow, a vow that the, the vow of the Nazarite, a vow of separation, whereby there was a few things that were mandated if you're going to take this vow. Oh, first off, you couldn't touch wine. You couldn't touch the, the fruit of the vine. You couldn't be in vineyards. You couldn't eat grapes, raisins. You couldn't eat. Uh, you couldn't drink wine. Wine is a symbol of joy. So the idea was, I'm not going to derive my joy from natural means. I'm going to derive my joy from supernatural means. My joy is coming from the Lord, not from a bottle of wine. Not a bad vow. Secondly, you could not cut your hair during the time of the vow. But when the vow was done, you would shave your head and it would be burned with the sacrifice which was a sign of a voluntary humility. I like the non-cutting of the hair part. I'm not so sure about the shaving of the head afterwards. Uh, I think it would be humbling. But Then thirdly, you couldn't be around a corpse. You couldn't be around anything that was dead or touch them or else you'd be defiled. I'm okay with that. But you see, even if your parents had passed, you couldn't touch them or be a part of the funeral setup, which would be very a very difficult decision to make. Now, according to the Jewish Mishnah, a Nazarite vow could last about 100 days. Typically, however, it was about a month-long period of time. Rarely do we ever read of a a lifelong commitment to be a Nazarite. Samson is one of them. I think John the Baptist is another. So in chapter 13, the Lord tells Mr. and Mrs. Manoah that they're going to have a son. 
He's going to keep the Nazarite vow from his birth. And that's where we left off. I think Samson's story is a very well-known story. Songs have been written about it. Movies made stories about it. There was a Sight and Sound Theater. They did a, a thing down there. I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, he was like a superhero of the Old Testament. He was like the Superman of the Old Testament. Though we will find his weakness is not kryptonite, but Delilahite. Actually, his weakness was his flesh. You know, a superman in muscles when the spirit came upon him, but a super wimp in morals. He was very compromised when it came to his flesh. Now, before we take a closer look at Samson, we need to get it out of our minds and out of the picture minds of this huge, you know, Chris Hemsworth Thor type of guy, you know, always flexing his muscles, strolling along. Yeah, I'm Samson, kind of walking around like that, you know. Why? Well, because we're going to see that he could stroll through the Philistine cities relatively anonymous. In other words, outwardly, he was very average, very ordinary guy, which makes this even more amazing because that means that everything extraordinary that he did was the result of the Spirit of God coming upon him. And the thing to bear in mind as we see Samson is, again, that God intended him to be a lifelong Nazarite. Supposed to live his life separated unto the Lord. But instead, in chapter 14, we find that we find him on the way to Philistine territory. You might say, on his way to hang out with non believers. Look now at verse 1 of chapter 14. Now, Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. So he went up and told his father and mother, saying, I've seen a woman in Timnah of the daughters of the Philistines. Now, therefore, get her for me as a wife. And this was lust at first sight. He sees a woman. He likes the woman. He wants the woman. He gets the woman. There's no restraint with this guy. But this was a Philistine woman, a pagan girl. She does not share the same worldview or value system as Samson. And a Philistine woman was simply out of the question for Nazarite. Also, like in some cultures even today, in that culture, there was no dating as such. The arrangement was made by the parents, not the, the children. They were arranged marriages. Well, as you might guess, Mr. and Mrs. Manoah were, were not too happy about it. Look at verse 3. Then his father and mother said to him, Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people that you must go and get a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? And Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she pleases me well. <laughs> I mean, this is just Samson's downfall for his life. His attraction to woman that just pulls him away from the will and out of the will of God. Even when his dad says, hey, she's a Philistine. Samson replies, oh, she looks good to me. Now, now, now that was godly counsel from dad. Uh, I mean, you know, parents, they know what is right. And, 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 and they knew what was right. And they immediately warned him against going down and doing this. They know what Samson was planning was not the Lord's will. So they try to change his mind. They try to encourage him to, to marry a good Israelite girl. Is there no woman among the daughters of your brethren or among all my people, they say? See, what they do is what any loving, caring parent is doing if they see their child about to make a serious mistake, about to go down a path they shouldn't go on. Warning you, don't go down this path. This isn't going to be good. It's what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 6 verse 4. Bring up your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. 
Parents, your, your children may not appreciate it, but you have a responsibility to warn them when they're about to do something that is harmful in their lives, even your adult children. You always can't make them do what is right, but you certainly can warn them. In fact, sometimes the Lord uses parents to hold up the stop sign right in front of our child. Stop. Don't go there. And yet here, in spite of the pleas from his parents, Samson had it in his heart what he wanted, and nothing was going to stop him. Samson's words here was, for she pleases me well. Literally, she has, he says, she is pleasing in my eyes. That might sound familiar to you. I mean, the repeated phrase in the book of Judges is that everyone did what is pleasing in his own eyes. I mean, here was Samson, a separated judge, acting just like the Philistine people. Samson doesn't care what his parents think, doesn't care about what God thinks, he doesn't care about what's right or what's wrong. All he cares about is what he thinks, what he wants, and what he feels. All he cares about is pleasing himself. So he disrespects his parents' wishes, and he disrespects God's will for his life. See, all this should have been a warning to Samson. See, when there's rebellion in the heart, that rebellion will manifest itself through disrespect for others and for the things of God. When you're not right with Christ and your relationship with Him, uh, you will take out your misery on other people. On top of that, when you find yourself doing as you please with no regard for how your actions will impact others, you're headed for disaster. When you stop caring what God's Word says, when you could care less about how your actions could hurt others, when you show no regard of, of people's feelings, you're heading for trouble. See, it's that desire to live for self, what I think, what I want, what I feel, and it becomes very evident in a rebellious heart. It's a warning sign that should be heeded. Disrespect for others, their feelings, their needs is a warning sign. There, there, there will be consequences, as we'll see. You know, this, is, I think, is one of the greatest fears, a parent, that your son or your daughter, even with the best beginnings and, and raising them in the ways of the Lord, will fall away from the Lord. And there's no doubt that Samson fell short. And it can break a parent's heart. But it should also encourage us as parents, because we know the end of the story, we know how God was with Samson as he repented in the end and defeated the Philistine. It's an example of training up a child when he's young, that, that when he's old he will not depart. So Samson goes to marry this Philistine woman. Look at verse 4. But his father and mother did not know that it was of the Lord, that he was seeking an occasion to move against the Philistines. For at that time, the Philistines had dominion over Israel. So was it God's plan for Samson to desire this Philistine woman? No. Did his parents know this? Well, they should have, but they didn't. They, they thought perhaps God is using this marriage to defeat the Philistines. But listen, God's will will never contradict God's word. Let me say that again. God's will will never contradict God's word. Samson's parents knew at least in part the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 7, where God says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, he says this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 3 and 4, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughters for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. His parents should have known that. A relationship with her compromised everything. But what they, I think this verse teaches, that, teaches us that even when we blow it, God's will will still be accomplished according to his purposes. 
Samson is in sin, lust, coveting, desiring to be unequally yoked. Yet God is going to use Samson's sin, his lust and his rage, to begin the deliverance of the Israelites from the Philistines. Actually, most of Samson's attacks against the Philistines stem from a woman being in the center of the situation and Samson getting angry. But it never ceases to amaze me how God uses everything to accomplish his purposes. Everything. The most terrible tragedy, the most hateful and vindictive leader, the most sinful person, God can turn it around and use it for good in a person's life or in a situation or in a country. I think of Israel becoming a nation, again, fulfilling end times prophecy, was the result of the tragedies and the murders of six million Jews by Hitler and the Nazis. I think of the awful uh, affliction that Joseph endured, being sold into slavery by his own brothers, falsely accused of, of a sexual attack by his owner's wife, abandoned in prison for years. These, these things were all working together for good, not only for Joseph's good, but for the entire country. Later in his life, when Joseph was confronted with his brothers, he said this in Genesis 50:20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as at this day to save many people alive. God can take evil and turn it around for good. You see, God's will is fulfilled in many ways and not necessarily by godly people, right? And Samson will spend much of his, his life following his sensual desires, that God is going to use it to deliver Israel from the Philistines. So verse 5. So Samson went down to Timnah with his father and mother and came to the vineyards of Timnah. <laughs> now think about that. Well, what is the guy who's taken the Nazarite vow now walking through the vineyards? Remember, no wine, no vineyards, no grapes, no raisins. You know, but Samson, he doesn't care. He's been separated from God uh, to God, but there's no real consecration of his own life and his own will. He has no boundaries, no restraints. Look at verse 5 going, going on. Now, to surprise, it says, A young lion came roaring against him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him, and he tore the lion apart, as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. So somewhere along the trip, Samson must have got ahead of his parents, separated, Samson's walking along, and suddenly this young lion roars and jumps towards him. No doubt taking Samson completely by surprise. Lion goes for his throat. They're trapped within these powerful jaws. Suddenly the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon him, and then this lion is nothing. He just kind of puts him, just rips him apart like that. This wasn't a baby lion. This wasn't a little cub. I mean, this wasn't some old, toothless, scraggly old lion ready to die. This is a lion in its prime, very dangerous beast. And again, we read Samson tore the line apart as one would have torn apart a young goat, though he had nothing in his hand. Now, what's strange to me about this story is that Samson didn't say anything to his mom and dad about it. I mean, that would have been the first thing that I would have done. Boy, it was so cool, Dad. I was walking along, and suddenly this was lying, and it looked at me, and I looked at it, and it jumped toward me, and, and all of a sudden, I got this power, and, it, and I just ripped it apart, Mom, with my bare hands. Now, we can't be certain why he kept quiet, why he kept it from his parents. Maybe he was embarrassed by spiritual things. Maybe he was afraid that his parents would say, why on earth are you walking through the vineyards in the first place? You weren't supposed to be there. Maybe he didn't want his parents to tell him again how they shouldn't be going down to the Philistines looking for a wife. That was a warning. God's going to stop you. But Samson didn't want to say what he just didn't want to hear it. Well, as they continue on the journey, we read in verse 7, 
Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she pleased Samson well. After some time, when he returned to get her, he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, a swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass of the lion. He took some of it in his hands and went along eating. When he came to his father and mother, he gave some to them, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey out of the carcass of the lion. <laughs> Same reason he didn't tell them about the lion in the first place. I mean, he turns, he's coming back, he sees the carcass of this young lion, sees a swarm of bees, sees the honey in the carcass. Now, this is a guy thing, I think. I don't know about gal, this is a guy thing. I'm a lots of lion that I killed. I want to go look at it. Oh, there's bees in it. Oh, there's honey in it. Oh, cool. Kind of a guy thing to do. I don't know why we just do stuff like that. But, but keep in mind, again, he's got a Nazarite bow. He's not only to stay away from vineyards, he was also not supposed to, to touch anything that was dead. But he goes right up to this dead lion, sticks his hand in, grabs the honey, licks his fingers, and he goes and gives some to his mom and dad. See, the problem with Samson is he just could not resist his flesh. He gave in to his sweet tooth. Never should have stopped to see the carcass of the lion in the first place, even if it had honey inside. No, sin is the same way. We're to stay away from it. Even though the Bible says it's pleasurable for a season, it's still sin. And there's always consequences to sin, as we'll see. Now to Samson, to Samson uh, rather, to, to, to be taking the Nazarite vow, I, I mean, he took being a Nazarite lightly, saying he took it lightly would be an understatement. So Samson is going to get his wife again. Look at verse 10. So his father went down to the women. And Samson gave a feast there, for young men used to do so. And it happened when they saw him that they brought 30 companions to be with him. So, as was the custom, Samson threw a week-long wedding party. Since it was in a foreign town, the Philistines provided 30 guests. Uh, the word for feast indicates this was a drinking banquet, so there was alcoholic wine. I mean, sadly, in just these few verses, Samson has broken all kinds of Nazarite vows. Verse 12. Then Samson said to them, let me pose a riddle to you. Riddle me this, Batman. If you can correctly solve and explain it to me within the seven days of the feast, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. But if you cannot explain it to me, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothing. And they said to him, pose your riddle that we may hear it. So he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Now, for three days, they could not explain the riddle. So the custom remains today that where the groom gives the groomsmen in the wedding party small gifts, tokens for their appreciation. With all these guys to buy for, you know, Samson devised a way where he wouldn't be out of the money for the gifts. He would give the groomsmen, uh, the, he would give the groomsmen the gift of clothes if they could answer his riddle. But if they couldn't, then he would get, be the one getting all the gifts from his groomsmen, new clothes. I mean, it's not surprising that Samson wanted a change of clothes. Samson was all about dressing up his flesh rather than denying it. I mean, it's like Samson knew that he did wrong in eating the honey and was kind of bragging about it in the riddle. Verse 15. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband that he may explain the riddle to us, or else we will burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us in order to take what is ours? Is that not so? See, unable to guess, the Philistines intimidated his fiancée, Samson's fiancée, 
threatening her and his father's house with death if she did not find out the answer to the riddle. Verse 16, then Samson's wife wept on him and said, you only hate me. You do not love me. You oppose a riddle to the sons of my people, but you've not explained it to me. Ever watched The Little House on the Prairie years ago? Samson's wife reminded me of the character of Nellie Olson. You hate me. You don't love me. Everyone is against me. Look at verse 16. Again, Samson replies. And he said to her, look, I've not explained it to my father or my mother, so should I explain it to you? And she had wept on him the seven days while their feast lasted. And it happened on the seventh day that he told her, because she pressed him so much that she explained the riddle to the sons of her people. I mean, she turns on the tears for seven days until he finally gives in and tells her the answer to the riddle. And she goes right to her people and blabs it to them. But what did Samson expect? He shouldn't have been with her in the first place. Now, there's something noteworthy here. Samson does comment about not revealing it to his parents. In one sense, he, he was leaving and cleaving. We know that Jesus taught that, that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Until you cut those ties, you cannot know the intimacy God intends and commands in that marriage relationship. The problem with Samson, again, was he was about to become one flesh with a pagan woman. There was nothing in common spiritually between them. Certainly there would be no trust at all. But we read that, that she pressed him every single day. What's the riddle? What's the meaning of the riddle? What's the meaning? You get it Samson, please tell, tell me what's the meaning. Uh, you know, there's a verse in Scripture, Proverbs 27, that says this. A continual dripping on a very rainy day and a contentious woman are like <laughs> whoever restrains or restrains the wind and grasps oil with his right hand. Samson had enough. Couldn't take it anymore. You press me every day. You're whining every day. I'll tell you what it means. And again, she tells the men of the city, verse 18, So the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? And what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would have not solved my riddle. This was the woman of his dreams. He saw her, and she pleased him. He had to have her. Seven drunken days later, she's now a heifer. She's a cow. How things can change so quickly. Listen, it's not so much about long engagement as it is about character. Look beneath the surface and be certain of the values and the character of a potential spouse. Again, raw animal passion, a lion attack, a stag party, a nag, and now a heifer. What a story. Well, because they had an answer to the riddle, Samson now needed 30 changes of clothing to pay his debt. Look at verse 19. Well, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily, and he went down to Ashkelon and killed 30 of their men, took their apparel, and gave the changes of clothing to those who explained the riddle. So his anger was aroused, and he went back up to his father's house. So God got him out of trouble. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him mightily in order to pay Samson's debt. God got him out of a, a bad relationship and even used him as a judge. Yet instead of, of repenting, we read that, that Samson's anger was aroused. He didn't see the Lord working graciously in his life. I mean, Samson was on his second strike in terms of the law governing a Nazarite. He touched a dead animal, he drank wine, one more strike, and he's out. That'll happen when we get to chapter 16 next time together when he allows his hair to be kept. But look down at verse 20. It says that Samson's wife was given to his companion who had been his best man. 
What a wedding, huh? Samson's gone, killing the 30 men of Ashkelon for their clothing. He comes back, things have changed. Wife was not given to his best man. Now, obviously, Samson's relationship with his wife wasn't what it should have been in the first place. He should have heeded his parents' warning. Going into an unequally yoked marriage would certainly start off with problems. In fact, I heard the story about a preacher who was performing a wedding when he came to the part of the ceremony in which it's traditional as if anyone knows why these two should not be married, let them speak now forever, hold his peace. The preacher asked that, and, and a voice rang out through the church. Uh, uh, you know, then would object to this marriage, and a voice came, I do. Quiet, said the preacher. Now, you're the groom. You can't object. I shared this recently. I've never conducted a wedding where I actually asked that as a question. I'm afraid I might actually get an answer. But judging the divorce rate that we have in our culture today, maybe there should be more wedding ceremonies that are brought to a halt because someone objects to marriage. That's why God is serious when he warns in his word about being unequally yoked together in marriage. You're just opening yourself up to all sorts of problems. Amos 3.3 tells us, can two walk together unless they are agreed? I mean, think about this relationship Samson had with his wife. Not that his wife was any better, but just look at Samson, how he treated her. First, he marries her for her looks. We know that he kept secrets from her. And on top of that, she was terrorized and threatened and betraying her husband. Samson calls her a heifer, a cow. And then leaves in a fit of rage. What a honeymoon. (laughs) Now, what happened next is so typical. Look down at verse 1 of chapter 15. After a while, in the time of wheat harvest, it happened that Samson visited his wife with a young goat, and he said, let me go into my wife in her room. But her father would not permit him to go in. So Samson, he's been gone and for a while, hasn't seen her in quite some time. He shows up with a gift, thinking he's going to go right in and have sexual relations with her. Hey, I brought you a goat. Now do for me. <laughs> Gee, thanks. You see again how selfish, how self-centered Samson is here, thinking only of himself. Samson is not only pretty dense, he's very selfish. Let me talk to you married men for a moment. Men, if you treat your wives with disrespect and you don't honor her as a weaker vessel and if you don't love her as Christ loves the church, don't think by bringing home a a bouquet of flowers or a goat every now and then it's going to solve all the problems. Uh, I know I've treated you horribly all week, but here's a bouquet of flowers. Let's be intimate. That's not the way it works. Now, if you treat your wife with respect, and honor her as a weaker vessel, and love her as Christ of the church, I assure you, you will not need flowers. Here is Samson. He wants to be intimate with his wife, yet the girl's dad saw right through it. He says in verse 2, her father said, I really thought that you thoroughly hated her. Therefore, I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister better than she is? Please take her instead. Remember, I gave her to the best man. She's not yours anymore. Now listen, people can tell a lot about how you really feel towards your spouse by how you treat them. I mean, the dad says here, hey, the way you treated my daughter, calling her a heifer, I thought you totally hated her. And sadly, in some marriages from both sides, the way they talk with each other, you would think that they, they do totally hate each other. But here, Samson's father-in-law, perhaps out of fear for his own life, was willing to give Samson his younger daughter, presumably as a wife. But Samson, he refused. He refused to take any blame for his failed marriage. And then when he discovers that her father had given her to someone else, he goes on a rampage again. Look at verse 3. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. And Samson won and caught 300 foxes, and he took torches, turned the foxes tail to tail, and put a torch between each pair of tails. 
When he had set the torches on fire, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and burn up both the shocks and the standing grain, as well as the vineyards and olive groves. It's interesting that word for jackals could also be translated, or rather for foxes, could also be translated as jackals. They're a little more aggressive and more dangerous than foxes, but not to Samson. I mean, he's tying their tails together and putting a, a torch between them. I mean, could you imagine just, just the time alone it would take to do this to 300 uh, of these foxes? Just grabbing a couple of jackals, tie their tails against them and fire. They go, a couple more, seven and fire. I mean, it's crazy. But the bottom line is the Philistine crop and the harvest was completely ruined, destroyed. They burned up the Philistine fields, their vineyards, destroyed the food supply. Now again, God is using Samson to defeat the Philistines, even though Samson's motives weren't always the best. But see, one act of violence now leads to another. Look at verse 6. Then the Philistines said, Who has done this? And they answered, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. So the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. So they got burned anyway. But talk about the holding of parents accountable. In this case, they held the in-laws accountable. Now, what the Philistines did was wrong. But it still reminds us that our failures in home affects others around us. People say, well, we're getting a divorce because it's better for our kids not to see us fight. Listen, it would be better for you to stay married and not to fight. Or at least to have a good fight if you're at the couple's dinner Friday night and heard Pastor Dennis's study. Know how to have a good fight. Verse 7, Samson said to them, Since you would do a thing like this, I will surely take revenge on you, and after that I will cease. So he tacked him hip and thigh with a great slaughter, then he went down and dwelt in the cleft of the rock of Etam. Hip and thigh is an expression like from head to toe. Basically, Samson destroyed these guys. He cleaned their clock. He wiped them out. Verses 9 through 13, Now the Philistines went up and camped in June and deployed themselves against Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? So they answered, We have come up to arrest Samson to do to him as he has done to us. Then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Etam and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines rule over us? What is this you've done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. But they said to him, We have come down to arrest you that we may deliver you into the hand of the Philistines. Then Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not kill me yourselves. So they spoke to him saying, no, but we will tie you securely and deliver you into their hands, but we will surely not kill you. And they bound him with their two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. So at this point, Samson was public enemy number one. Philistines are going to attack, to attack Judah, and to demand to Israel that, that Samson be turned over to them for justice. And instead of, instead of fighting the Philistines or even talk, taking a stand, they say, okay, we'll go get them. Interesting to me that this is the first time that we read that the people of Israel, God's people, got an army together for any kind of military purpose during the time of Samson as a judge. And they're not raising an army to attack the Philistines. They're raising an army to attack one of their own, to attack Samson. Which reminds me sometimes of the church, not our church, but the church of Jesus Christ often attacks its own rather than fighting the real enemy, the devil and his minions and the worldly value system. We attack our own. We want to be salty with our own. We want to hurt people who are brothers and sisters in Christ. And it just shows a level of compromise and worldliness. Something else 
to notice the children of Israel, were, they were under the dominion of the Philistines. What's interesting to me is that they would prefer that they, they, they have this peaceful coexistence with their enemy ruling over them uh, and, and they're allowing themselves a level of slavery rather than freedom. Oh yeah, we'd just rather be, you know, be ruled by these people. And I think that can happen in any country. And I think that circumstances right now in our country are pushing churches to that same extent. Hey, just accept abortion, accept homosexuality, accept all kinds of immoral sexual behavior. How can you call yourself a church and not be loving? We'll tell you what you can do with your church. And churches are falling for it all over the place. Rather than saying, you know what, sin is sin. Well, no part of that. We must obey God rather than man. Yeah, love the sinner, pray for the sinner, seek for the sinner to be forgiven and saved, uh, but do not allow the sexually immoral culture of today to tell the church what they can and can't do. Stand upon the Word of God and trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us stand firm. We're going to do what He calls us to do. But not with the children of Judah. They, they were peacefully coexisting with the Philistines, compromised, taking away the freedom and pushing them into bondage, into slavery, all sorts of sexual morality. Oppression to them seemed better than hoping that Samson would be willing to fight for them. Now, if you look at it, up until now, everything Samson did was, was for selfish motives. He lived in his flesh. So the Israelites are taking no chances. They sent 3,000 men to apprehend him and turn him over to the, to the Philistines. Yet here, Samson finally shows his faith in God by allowing himself to be bound. He evidently believed that God's Spirit would come upon him and give him great victory. And he does. Look at verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting against him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon him. And the ropes that were on his arms, he came like flax that is burned with fire, and his bonds broke loose from his hands. He found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached out his hand and took it, and killed a thousand men with it. I mean, the Philistines were the most advanced metal workers of their day. They had the finest weaponry, yet the weapons meant nothing to God. I think about this. In Judges chapter 3, Shamgar killed 600 of them with an ox goad. Uh, and here, a thousand were killed with the jawbone of a donkey. Later on, David will, will slay their fierce champion, Goliath, with one smooth stone. God uses the foolish uh, things of the world to confound the wise, the weak to overcome the strong. He wants it to be made known that it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit. And that's why, again, I think we should get the, the Chris Hemsworth Thor picture out of our minds and maybe picture someone like Pee Wee Herman. Uh, <laughs> Because it's God, I mean, just, just doing the work when the Spirit of God comes upon Samson. And in the same way, with the Spirit of God upon our lives, there's nothing that we can't do that the Lord calls us to do. In verse 16, Then Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have slain a thousand men. And so it was, when he finished speaking, that he threw the jawbone from his hand and called that place Ramath Lehi. So Samson here attempts to be a poet. He says, with a jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, which literally translated as, with a jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in mass. Or, you know, Samson wasn't a poet, but he tried. It's, it's funny that one commentator says that Ramath Lehi means jawbone heights, referring to the heaps of dead Philistines. Crazy. Where do you live? Jawbone heights. Well, with all this going on, Samson works up a thirst. Look at verse 18. Then he became very thirsty. So he cried out to the Lord and said, You have given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
So God split the hollow place that is in Lehi, and water came out, and he drank. And his spirit returned, and he revived. Therefore he called his name in Hakor, which is in Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel 20 years in the days of the Philistines. A man can work up a, a pretty good thirst after killing a thousand men single-handedly. I think this is, this is really the high point of the story. Samson realizes his humanity and helplessness with the simple absence, uh, absence of water. So he calls out to the Lord for provision. Even though at times Samson reacted in his flesh, he still had a love for the Lord. And he went on to judge uh, Israel for 20 relatively peaceful years. Samson gave God the glory. We hesitate to say it because it sounds like we're condoning his sin. We're not. You just don't want to pour out the baby with the bathwater. Samson was a man mightily used by God and who was singled out in the New Testament as one of the giants of faith there in Hebrews 11. And here we see him delivering Israel if he'd only had kept the goal before him. Now we will, we will look at verse 1 of chapter 16 and we'll close here tonight uh, because chapter 16 is too long to cover. It would be here till 9 and, and I want to take our time to this. So we're just going to hit verse 1 of chapter 16 and we'll close with this. It says, Now Samson went to Gaza and saw a heart there and went into her. You know, Samson. I mean, he should not have gone down. I mean, note yourself, Samson, don't go to Gaza. I mean, or any other place, for that matter, where you might be tempted. I mean, he's going down there knowing full well he's going to be tempted. So don't go to places in your mind yet where you might be plotting or planning to sin. Don't put yourself in places where you know that you have an area of weakness in your life. If you're trying to lose weight, don't put an application in a Krispy Kreme, okay? Don't put an application in an Andy's custard, uh, in fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee sexual immorality. Flee every sin that a man does outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, Satan knows exactly how to bait that hook in your life, whatever it may be. He knows what you're vulnerable to. He knows what, what you're impressionable with. So what he does is he uses those things to entice you. James puts it this way in James 1.14 and 15. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and, and desires and is enticed. Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. The word enticed in the Greek means to, to bait a hook. So you can take a worm or you can take bait and you can put it on the hook and, and you go, what do you do? Well, you're concealing the sharpest point of that hook. So the little fish is swimming around going, wow, you're so kind. You provided this wonderful meal for me today. Thank you for this worm. Because the hook is concealed. Now that's what Bathsheba did, uh, was, was for David. David saw this beautiful girl named Bathsheba. She, she was the bait. But underneath was the hook. Once he, bit, once he took that bait, it brought misery to his family. It ruined his relationship with his children. A couple of them would die. There would be a plague on the land. There would be destruction in his own household. That's what Satan does. He hides the hook and he makes the bait really attractive. And he knows exactly in your life where you are weak and exactly what bait to use in your life. And, and, and that is what we'll see him do next time with Samson and Delilah. But understand, God's word said this, there is no temptation taking you but such as is common to man. But God will not allow you to be, temp- God will not allow you to be tempted above what you are able. But... With the temptation, will make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. I mean, sometimes the way out of temptation is just simply 
walking away, closing the door, not going to give in to them. Yeah, God, God will allow temptation to come, but he'll always give us a way out, always a way to resist. And understand this, at any time when you do fall and when you do fail, because Jesus died on the cross and met the righteous demands of God, I can approach the Lord no matter what, any time with what I've done, and I can confess my sin. and I can find that forgiveness from my sin. He will forgive me. That doesn't give me the liberty to sin, but the assurance that we have a Father who loves us and doesn't want us to walk in our flesh, but walk in the Spirit. And again, we'll finish up the story of Samson next time together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time we spend in your Word. Lord, we thank you that as we look to your Word, there's things that we can walk away with and going, Lord, help us not to do that. Help us not to... To, to live in our flesh. And look at Samson, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life is all wrapped into what he did this evening as we read. Lord, I pray that you'd help us not to fall for the bait that Satan puts before us. Lord, we, we think of our own lives and we think of what you want to do in us and through us. Lord, you have us here on this earth for a time to be your instrument for your glory. You tell us we're to submit to you, to surrender our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. Lord, we pray for the power of your Spirit to do just that. Lord, you promise that we could be powerful instruments in your hands. Uh, Lord, we pray for that as well. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would control us, enable us, empower us, that when the pressures come on the outside to give into our flesh, that we would resist it and have that victory. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us on the cross, your love for us. Thank you for this night. In Jesus' name.